ask you a very thought-provoking question this morning. Dustin, if you'll turn me down just a little, I'm ringing, or maybe the monitor's down just a little. Are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, how do you know that you're a Christian? What I'm saying is, what do you base your belief on? Do you base it on the fact that you prayed a prayer? You got up and you came to church this morning? You're a nice person? You felt like that you were breaking some rules and, and you needed some Jesus in your life? See, I hear all these things. You wanted to keep the rules because you knew how bad you were, so you thought that you would listen to a TV evangelist and at the end of his sermon you would pray a prayer and send him a $1,000 seed of faith. Why are you a Christian? Well, Pastor, I felt bad and I knew I had bad behavior in my life and I wanted to get it fixed. I needed more of God in my life. I, I watch TV and, and these guys tell me that and, or tell evangelists. And I came to church and I prayed. Then they told me I should get wet, so I got baptized. And now I'm doing my best to keep the rules. And I hope I go to heaven when I die. That's religion. And so, it's not biblical Christianity because biblical Christianity is more radical than that. It's the problem that we experience right now in the church the culture is in big trouble the rioting in the streets is not the same as the civil rights movement we've never been anywhere in our nation like we are today the problem is is not with the nation though and it's going to make you mad but the problem is with the church Darkness is never the problem. It's the absence of light. Decay is not the problem. It's the absence of the savor of the salt. The problem is me. The problem is you. The problem is that we're living in an apostate world and an apostate culture. And the church itself has adopted that culture. And the truth is, we feel comfortable with the way that we are. And because we feel comfortable, it's never going to change. When we see a normal Christian walking down the road, we really think they're weird. As a matter of fact, we talk about it in our social groups. We don't talk bad about them. We just wonder why they are the way they are. Because I'm a Christian, but that person's a freak. Someone said the average Christian is so subnormal. When we see one that is normal, we're certain that they are the ones that are abnormal. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean? Pastor, why are you so emphatically saying this this, mor this morning? Because the vultures are circling. They see weak, anemic prey are barely hanging on. That's you. 
They say weak, anemic Christians who can't get a grasp on Jesus Christ himself who is simple. Paul is writing to the Philippian church this letter. This letter that has changed my life. I want to read it to you again, then I want to read it in a different translation. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Man, that's powerful. In the suke. Though I might have confidence in my mind, my will, my emotion, my seed of personality. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Well, why, Paul? Well, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the stock of Israel. There's no better creed. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was confident in what he was saying. As touching the law or speaking about the law, I'm a Pharisee, the strictest of strict. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteous, which is in the law, I'm blameless. Or he says blameless. He doesn't say I am, but that's what he's talking about. Let me read you a translation that you can get a hold of. I don't know if the guys have it up there or not. Though I myself has, have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, he said I've created a covenant. That's what it is, the circumcision. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. He says, I have all my ducks in a row. I've kept the law. I'm a Pharisee, the strictest of any people. My zeal cannot be matched. I'm more passionate than anyone in any room at any time. And I persecuted the church. Do you know why? I thought it was the right thing to do. Let me translate further for you. What does it mean to be a Christian? Paul said, it's not ceremony. What does it mean to be saved? Paul said, it's not a membership to a group. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's not being a part of a class of people that are more committed than everyone else around them just because. It's not being a rule keeper like my wife, Kate. It's not how much passion that you have or being a zealous person or not even living an impeccable life. It's knowing Jesus Christ. It's our relationship with Him. It's not some magic words that we say or some magic words that a pastor sprays over you. That's Pentecostal dust. It's not about getting wet. Paul says this in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those things, those things that were my gain, those things that everybody recognized me for, I count them as loss for Christ. He says they meant nothing for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. 
I've told you this before. The Greek expositor explains it like this. It's probably one of the greatest understandings I've ever had. My first understanding of this was when I was 12. He says, the things which were of such a nature to be gains, to be treasures, to be gold to me, these things I have set down. But then he goes further. He says, no struggle, no wrestling. He just set them down, Paul did, for the sake of Christ. As a loss. As a loss to what? My nature. As a loss to the, the very person that everybody thought that I was. I set them down as a loss. They couldn't call me that anymore. They couldn't say I was this kind of person because I forsook that. I set it down. I'm not looking back. As a loss for Christ. This word excellency is a word that means superior, better. He said, I set them down for the excellency of the knowledge, for the superiority of knowing Jesus, because he's better. He's better than anything the world can manufacture or produce. It's the epinosis, the knowledge of experience. Not just a head knowledge of Jesus. That's where most Christians are, I hate to say it. Not just a head knowledge of Jesus, but actually experiencing the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Knowing Him in my heart. And knowing Him by my heart. Come on with me. The joy of knowing Him. I want to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, listen. But a, a, but a righteousness in Christ. There's a word there. That we seem to miss. It's such a simple word. It's like a word that makes a transition. But he says in Christ. Why does he say in Christ? Because if you're up close to Christ. There's still that gap of room to mess up. But if you're in him. There's no room for error. It's the excellency of the knowledge. The epinosis of God. We've got to be connected to. Not up close. In Christ. This is what I found and it blew me away. Paul here picks up a theme. The theme of Abraham, his ancestor. I'll, I'll take you there in just a moment, but there's some things that we need to hash out. Faith is counted for what? You ever ask yourself? It's not about being a righteous person. Well, pastor, yes it is. See, that's where we went wrong in the church. It's not about being a godly person. Well, you're preaching some kind of heresy. It's not about the Ten Commandments. It's not about doing holy stuff. It's not about changing what you say. It's not about acting differently. It's about a relationship that is so profound, it encompasses the fruit of righteousness and holiness in your life. It causes all of that stuff to happen because you're up close and personal. It's not trying to be righteous and holy. That's what most of us do. It's something about Christ in you that is so profound, so touching your life that he has to be with you. Paul said, I want to know him. And something changed inside of Paul. 
Because Paul makes this, this statement that if, if you're just reading it with the natural eye and not the spiritual eye, he sounds like a fruit loop nut that needs to be admit, admitted somewhere. He says this, even if I have to suffer, even if it costs me something that I think I am. See, we think we're a lot of things. That's the problem we thought. See, in Jesus Christ, you don't have to think about nothing. That's why the world thinks we're a bunch of crazy idiots. Because they don't understand because they've never got a whole hold of the supremacy, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Pastor, you're being real straightforward today. First of all, I'm always that way, but I'm probably a little more abrasive today. Because we are running out of time. And I feel it. It's a burden. It's a weight. I can't even go to work without thinking about it. And we're just doing church. Going to church. How are you? So glad to see you. Oh my goodness, I'm so glad you're at church today. And I am. I don't really care what it costs me. Because I have a relationship. An experience. Listen to verse 12. He says, not as though I had already attained, neither were already perfect. Because you will not reach perfection until you get to heaven. I don't have time for this, but you should strive for, for perfection. Because when Jesus Christ made you, when God made you in your mother's womb, he made you out of perfection. I, I don't have time for that. But I follow after him, if that, I, it, that I may, listen, apprehend that for which also I am apprehend, apprehending, excuse me, apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me, and reaching forth, reaching forth to those things which are before I want to know him so intimately that I obtain the resurrection of the dead. Pastor, that sounds crazy. Jesus died. And he rose again and he wants you to obtain that same resurrection that he had. It's a resurrection out of this personal calamity into heaven. You got to catch it here. Paul said, I've, I've not got there yet. I'm still, I'm still trying to apprehend. I love that for all those self-righteous people that live right at the foot of the cross and never sin and never mess up and, and nothing ever happens because Paul said, I make mistakes. As a matter of fact, there, it was Paul that talked about this thorn in his flesh. Do you know that most theologians believe that he had trouble with homosexuality? Not Paul. I don't know. I wasn't there. But could you imagine if he did this, this, this pillar of the church? And he said, I, I left it behind for the excellency of knowledge. Well, why don't you fill in the blank to your need? Well, that makes me change about Paul. We don't know that. That's just what somebody said. How about somebody say something about you and you believe it? Because that's what happens to people. 
Some people don't like me. They never met me. Do you know why? Because somebody said. Paul said, I don't care about none of that. They can talk about me. They can say whatever. 2,000 years from now, they can say whatever because I want to obtain. I want to apprehend. I'm going to chase after. Paul says, I want to lay hold on that thing that Christ has laid hold on me. What a powerful idea. Paul says, Christ has a grip on me. You know you're saved because the Lord has a grip on you. You can't walk away. I'm definitely not a Calvinist, but you cannot walk away. Where can I go that you're not there? If I make my bed in hell, you are there. I can't get away from him because he has a grip. I used to work in the emergency department. It was my most favorite job. It almost, to be honest with you, wrecked my marriage because I would work 20 hours a day. If I worked a 12-hour shift and, and they would say, hey, can you stay over eight hours? Yes, I can. If I was there 20 hours and they asked me to stay four more, yes, I can. It engulfed my whole life because there was something different at every, every stage and every, every patient that come in was different. And for me, I have just a touch of ADD, so that's wonderful. I go from this guy to this guy to this guy, and then I'm able to process it in my mind while I'm working on the other guy. That's how ADD works. Everybody acts like people with ADD are, are dumb or stupid, but I can tell you right now that they're probably some of the smartest people sitting in the room because scientists say that their mind is split and they're the only people that can truly do two things at once. Imagine someone with ADD working on you in the emergency department. Sometimes the EMS would bring in patients that were in a diabetic coma, low glucose level. If I could embody my grandmother, who was a nurse for a moment, she'd say, well, buddy, she's from West Virginia, very intelligent. But people from West Virginia and Kentucky, they're southern people, and they sound, when they're saying stuff that's very um, deep, they sound like it's just like every day because of the way they word it. Well, buddy, he's just got low blood sugar. Do you know what I'm talking about now? That's what she would say. We would get them the proper medication that they needed and they would begin to come out of that. Some of you are diabetics in the room. When they come out of it, you had to hold them down. Do you know why? Because when they come out of it, a lot of times they would become combative. My grandma would say it like this. They'd fight you. And so you'd hold them down to keep you safe, to keep the person next to you safe, to keep them safe, and to keep from getting your equipment broken. And they'd be furious because they didn't know what was going on. Not everybody's that way. Jesus has a grip on you. You can flail around all you want to. But I want you to understand that just like those patients, he has a grip on you because he doesn't want you in trouble. He doesn't want the people around you in trouble. And he doesn't want you breaking his equipment. And Paul said, I want to lay hold on him the way he has a grip on me. 
I want to lay hold on him the way he has a hold on me. I'm not done. I'm trying to grasp him. I got to forget the things that are behind me. Why? Because I'm pressing towards a higher goal. I'm pressing towards the mark of the high calling. Now, it's funny. I don't have time. See, I don't have time. There's many avenues here. I, that God is telling you to press towards the high mark when he marked you. I don't have time for that scripture and all of that stuff. He says, press towards the mark of the high calling. I want to know him. I want to know him so intimately that it's as if we are intertwined together. It's a twisting and a braiding of his strength into your weakness. And once you're braided together with Christ, you cannot leave him. People with an encounter are able to leave. Let's go back to this original question. How do you know that you're a Christian? There are a number of things in the life of Abraham that really stand out about his faith. Paul speaks of an Abrahamic faith. That's what theologians call it. I need you to understand this. It is pre-law. It is pre-Moses. It is pre-Mount Sinai. This Abrahamic faith is totally before we actually understood what it was to be a Christian and have all the laws and commandments and all of those things. And this understanding that Paul gives us about this Abrahamic faith is the very root of the original Christianity. It's stripped down to give us a great understanding easily. And the understanding that we receive is really about prayer. Genesis 12:1 Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of this country, and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. The first thing that we see right off the bat, God says to Abraham, is that you've got to hear the voice of God. Do you see that Abraham heard? How do you know the voice of the Lord? See, if you are a Christian, it's the same voice that you heard the night that you got saved. That voice is calling you. That, that, it's that voice that you heard. It may have started as a, as a vague notion that I, I've got to serve God. It may have started as a calling or something that drove you to Him. But you have heard the voice of God at least once. God's voice never changes. And if you let him, he'll keep talking to you. Well, how do you know his voice doesn't change, Pastor? The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrews 13, 8. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. He didn't say you know him because everybody knows who Jesus is. That don't mean they follow him. Satan knows who Jesus is. He don't follow him. He has to be ruled by him. Do you see the difference? You can follow or be ruled. Hmm. And they follow me, he said. They know my voice. Or I know them and they follow me. Now the strange thing about this Abrahamic understanding is that we think prayer is talking to God. Well, yes, pastor, it is. This is why you can't miss it this morning. 
Because people are going to go out of here and say a lot of things I didn't say because they only caught half. It's not about talking to God. Pastor, I've been taught my whole life that prayer is talking to God. The most important thing about your prayer life is that you get a place where you can hear from God. That's why prayer life on the run doesn't work. That's why a microwave prayer doesn't work. Come on, Lord, I'm very busy. Jump in the car with me. Do you care if I play my radio? Just a little worship music. You're driving down the road in the car. That's why that doesn't work. There's times that I about wrecked my car crying and praising the Lord. But you have to have time where you go into a prayer closet, a place where you can sit with the Lord and you hear from Him. You catching me? You cheapen your relationship with God if that's your only time with Him. Can I tell you that's most Christians' only time with Him? Intimacy demands privacy. Intimacy demands that we get alone and spend time, and it's very important and imperative. If you want to value God, you have to take time for God. If you don't have time to pray, you don't have time for God. Hear me. That's a damaging assessment of the Christian church. Stop and pray. Do you know I hear pastors say all the time, I don't have time to stop and pray? Hmm. Maybe you should look at the church and the condition that it's in. Do you know that the Bible tells us that the church is a direct understanding of who the pastor is? So if the pastor don't pray, if the pastor don't spend time with God, if you're not hearing a word from God from the pastor, anybody can stand behind the pulpit and preach. But if the pastor is not hearing from God, you better run as far away as you can run. But instead, we want to sit there because somebody grabs something out of a book and they want to preach it. You better hear. You better ask God to show you. Lord, help me. The most important thing in prayer is not your prayer list. Because God's not your handyman. You pray for a list of people and then you pray for a list of things that you need God to do and you want and you have to have and, and all of these things. And God touched my life because I've got this going on and i got that going on. And the truth about the whole thing is, is it's centered on me and you really don't have an issue. You just think you do because you need something. I said that fast. I hope you got it. Well, pastor, my daughter's in high school and she's driving a clunker. I need her to have a better car. I need it. I gotta have it. No, you don't. Every kid drove a clunker. You know why? Because they run into the Wendy's the first time you, they get a chance to go out. Amen? See, you might have not told your moms and dads you ran into the Wendy's. But we know what happened. Because we were all there too. The most important thing in your life is that you hear the voice of God. 
I got to tell you something. Hear me well. God wants to talk to you more than you want to talk to Him. He wants you to hear from Him more than you want to hear from Him. Okay. Back to theology class. The law of first mention is a phrase used by people who have taken their whole lives to study the Bible. The law of first mention states the first time that the word shows up in the scripture, it is a special meaning and of special importance. When the first time arises, what happens is, it is how the word comes to be known. And the significance that God uses, or the significance God uses it for throughout the whole Bible from that point. The law of first mention says that the word in its true form will keep its definition throughout the whole word of God. That's very important. Because if he's constantly changing, how can I listen to him? Confucius changed. Buddha changes. Muhammad changes. Allah Akbar changes. But the last time I checked, my Bible told me that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He will not change. He will not lead you wrong. And so, this meaning then sets a pattern to move forward. The first time in the Bible we see what will become a prayer... Is in Genesis 1.28. Because God begins to speak to the people and God blessed them, the Bible says. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the, the fish of the sea and over the fowls of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. We've talked about this a lot in stewardship. He says, you have to apply the gift of dominion. But you're going to have to apply it yourself. You're going to have to subdue the earth yourself. And then he says, I'm telling you this because you are not a victim. See, we live in a world of victims. We live in a world of people that push their problems off on somebody else. And, and they try to diversify those problems with different people so that you don't know that they're asking you for everything that they need. You are not a victim. You are not powerless in this world. And the Bible says you are not barren. You are fruitful. Act fruitful. He said, I've given you something I've never even given the angels. The power to procreate. Why? Because I'm inside of you. What is the most expensive thing that we possess on this earth? The breath of God. When God breathed in you, it is the most expensive commodity that we have. It's not your time. That's the most expensive quality that we have. Or the most expensive thing that we have. The most expensive thing on this earth is the breath of God. I hope I'm talking to someone this morning. God said, I breathed in you. This is a powerful 
moment in Genesis, and we buzz right through it. It's what he's wanting to do within you. He wants to speak over your life. And the key of this is fruitfulness. He wants to speak over your life and the key is destiny in your life. He wants to speak over your life and give you dominion that he proclaimed over you back in the book of Genesis. It's rulership. And he wants to give this to you in your life. He has a blessing for us, all of us. But we are so busy that we don't have time to receive the blessing. We think the blessing is money and working 80 hours. We think the blessing is bigger houses and working ourselves to death and nicer cars and, and, and better insurance and better schools for our kids. We have missed the whole point of receiving because we're too busy doing it our way. Prayer is hearing the voice of God. Prayer is being changed and transformed by the voice of God. Listen, in Genesis 12, Abraham hears. Then the Bible says that you get direction. Abraham leaves his country. That's the direction. Then you get promise of blessing. I'll make you a great nation, Abraham. Then you get purpose. You shall be a blessing. Your purpose is to be a blessing. You get all of this in chapter 12. I, I got to point something out there. The, that faith that is partnered with prayer is an understanding of an adventurous journey. See, we have forgotten the reason that we step into Christianity in the first place. It's so God can save our soul and put us on a journey that is more adventurous than we could ever walk in sin. It's a journey of transformation. It's a journey of change. Because I'm saved. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Because if we don't know that, I promise you the vultures are circling. I haven't even got to the vultures yet. That's tonight. You know, we want this version of God that says, Okay, God, I want to live in MacArthur the rest of my life. I like it here. Bless me. Fix my life up. I need a little better house. I don't like to drive on those may blow tires. That's those tires that may blow any moment. I need those fixed. But I really like where I'm at. And God says, I want to transform your life. Because when we forget to follow Christ instead of following our own regulations and guidelines, then we forget the tradition that he wants to transform everything about you. Why? Because you are a man or woman of sin. So God traded Jesus Christ's life for your life. Hmm. He says, my son died on the cross. It cost me his life because you sinned. He died at the young age of 33. 
Is there a possibility that we could understand how much God loved us? Is there a possibility that you would understand how much he cared for you? That you would trust him enough with, with your plan and purpose or take your plan and purpose out and let it be his plan and purpose in your life? That you would stop asking him to do all of these things because he already has it covered for you? And believe that he has it covered for you? And believe that his purpose and his plan and his opportunity is better than what you have created? Is there a possibility that you would drop everything, sell everything, and follow him? Pastor, any moment I think you're going to ask me to go to Uganda. Think about what I'm saying to you. What we don't seem to understand is faith disrupts our lives. Faith disrupts what is normal. Do you know why God puts a great premium on faithfulness? Because it disrupts the normal. Now watch this. Because I'm losing you every step I go. The Bible says that Abraham was in Babel. Babel is a place of confusion. It's literally what the word means. And God says, I want you to go to a land I will show you. Now keep in mind that we haven't had Moses in the law yet. This is this original Christian faith. Okay? He says, I will go to a land I will show you. Well, hang on a minute, Lord. Just take a second. Can you show me some pictures? How about, uh, do you know where it is on the map? Can you just show me a map? Um, is there, yeah, can, I, can you send my family there a week? We kind of get a feel for it, see if we like it. Look how the terrain is. Right? I'm talking to someone. Then my wife and I can discuss it. We can see if that's a place that we want to go. What if he sends you someplace that you don't want to go? Let me tell you about this pastor that I know. He's at a church. He's poised to take over the church. It has 250 people in it. His family's doing great. All of this stuff is perfect. The pastor's about to retire in a couple years. He's going to take over. The church knows him, so there's not going to be a big church split when they bring some big guru in. Everything's perfect, right? Then all of a sudden, somebody comes and says, Hey, we got to send you out to the middle of nowhere. This little hick church. They got 12 people in it. They're barely hanging out. They didn't say that. You'll have a, they, this is what you hear. You'll have a $3,000 salary twice a week, twice a month. Pfft, sign me up. Because yeah, everybody knows that all the pastor does is sit at home and collect his money, right? Go to a funeral here and there. I guess if your kids need to get married, we'll marry them. That's all we do. And so, fast forward, this pastor comes into this church. It wasn't, at the time, named Renovate Life. But now it is. Death, destruction, and a black cloud was here. I promise you. I've been through 107 pastors. Do you think I wanted to come here? Matter of fact, when they told me you can come here, I said, absolutely not. 
You know what they said? Just go preach one time. All right, brother, I'll humor you. I'll go one time. I'll go down there. You know what another fact was? I lived here. Shut your mouth. <laughs> Three minutes down the road. I was driving an hour and a half to church. Because that's where God put me. Wait a minute, pastor. You're telling me that your faith took you an hour and a half out of your way. A three hour drive every Sunday just to get to church. If there is a hint of snow, we don't come to church. Right? Boy, I'm in big trouble. But we ask all these questions. Now, I'm not even talking about preachers. I'm talking about you. Listen. You want me to tell you how it went in the Old Testament? The Bible says Elisha left everything that he had. He killed his oxen. He burnt. He burnt his plow. Why? He knew he wasn't coming back. And then he chased after Elijah. Well, I don't like that version. Good, I got one in the New Testament. <laughs> Drop your nets, sell your boat, and follow me. I don't really care for that version either. That's the problem. He wants your whole life. He doesn't want your Sunday morning. He wants your whole life, and he doesn't want normal Christianity. Apostate Christianity is fitting God into your life. The life that you've already created for yourself. You pray for your own benefit. I'm talking about following hard after God on an adventurous journey. A journey where God takes you and, and molds you. Listen, it's a place where you leave everything that you are to find who God wants you to be. Well, that's hard. Why? Because your whole life, your parents are making you. Your coaches are making you. Everybody that you come in contact with, are teaching, they're teaching you something either to do or not to do. And you are being built. But you are being built. You don't understand that God allows you to come in contact with those specific people so He can build you a specific way. Listen, I've had people say, Glenn Dimmel, that they'll come to the church and they'll say, I need this, this, and this. And I'm saying, I say, don't worry about it. We'll pray about it and we'll write you a check. And then months down the road, they'll come and they'll say, well, uh, you know, I have this trouble. And, 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 I, and the church always provides. The church didn't provide for you. God did through the church. And we forget so quickly. Because of the way things work out, that it's God. Everything is God. Everything working in your life is God. If it's bad in your life, God had a plan for you. If it's good in your life, God had a plan for you. Your whole life is to represent Jesus Christ. Everybody around you should see the fragrance and aroma of Jesus Christ all over you. When you walk into the grocery store and there's something broken, they should know who can fix it because you can call on the name of the Lord. Look at the prophets. Anyone in the Bible that did anything significant 
for God. He disrupted their lives. Hey, Noah, I want you to build an ark, and not just any kind of ark. I want you to build a massive ark like nobody's ever seen. And don't worry, Noah, you don't have to have any training. Yes, I do. I need three law degrees. I need an engineering degree. I need a building degree. i got to be a nurse. That's how we think. Noah had no idea he had a couple kids and a wife to help him. He got them married so that they could help. And then they started building stuff. They had no idea. The boat should have sank the moment that this much water got up. But somehow, some way, it worked. That somehow, some way is Jesus Christ. Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Peter. Peter's the only one goofy enough to step off a boat and try to walk on the water. But you got to look at where Peter was when he got off the boat. Where was everybody else? They were on the boat saying, look at Peter. <laughs> He's the one that was, as long, hear this, this is a great revelation of Christianity. As long as he was looking at Jesus Christ, he was completely fine. I'm telling you that your whole life has to be spent looking at Jesus Christ. Why? Because you'll be totally fine. But the moment that you take your eyes off it, he was in a storm. Think about it. The boat was rocking to and fro like a crazy thing. He couldn't understand the storm. But as Peter walked, he was able to step over the waves as long as he was looking at Christ. What is Christianity? It's faith in the God that you say you believe in. Everything that God uses in a significant way, He disrupts. He wants to disrupt your life. And He's calling you to follow Him. What happens if you're at a church planted, rooted, grounded, and God uproots you like He did me? Uproots you like He did my children? I cannot stand for that. Now, Lord, you can do whatever you want with me, but don't you touch my kids. That's how we are. Something will happen in our lives, and God is trying to teach our children, and we are totally messed up about it. And he's trying to call them. He's trying to reach out to them. But we are so naturally minded that we forget about the supernatural when God is trying to speak to them. Instead of saying, pray to him, like... The goofy prophet told Samuel, instead of saying, pray to God, ask for God to touch you, ask for God to reveal to you, we come to the pastor and complain because God's done something in their life and you just don't understand it. Boy, I'm in big trouble. So you hear God, then you obey God. Watch this because it's critical and I'm actually almost done. When you obey in the least little way, the greater revelation comes that would have never came to you if you didn't first hear and step out in obedience. 
Nobody can do this for you. I can't do this. Your spiritual guru can't do this for you. A televangelist cannot do this for you. You have to hear the voice of God for you in your life. The Bible says, so Abraham hears and he obeys. Then God appeared to him. So now he's seen God. Now, I have to go back to this Genesis understanding in, in Genesis chapter 3 to give you a great understanding of something. We're not in the mess that we're in because Adam and Eve had some great immoral dilemma when they took the fruit. There's nothing immoral about pulling a piece of fruit off a tree. In fact, Genesis 3 makes God look like uh, Mr. McGregor. Who is Mr. McGregor? If you have kids, you know, because he's in Peter Rabbit. And he puts up this great big fence around the garden. He won't even let the rabbits have a carrot. That's what it makes God look like. But the battle is not between morality and immorality. But that's where we live today. I'm a Christian because I'm a good person. Is that where you live today? I'm not really moral. I'm on the right side enough to go to heaven. I, I mean, at least I think I am. That's not the deal, morality and immorality. We have to compare as Christian people who know the natural versus the supernatural. All Adam and Eve could see was the natural. I'm going to eat the fruit. They couldn't see God moving. There's a spiritual understanding that will arise in your life. So that you begin to sense and know God. When you're born again. You will see the kingdom of God like you've never seen the kingdom of God before. Your eyes will become open to things that you've never seen before that people around you cannot see. It's a spiritual understanding that will arise in your life. And you'll begin to sense things that God will begin to put in you. You'll see God moving. You'll, you'll sense the spiritual change. And you'll sense the spiritual heightening in your life. You will hear God and, and, and you will begin to see God. He will appear to you. This is what it means to have a life of prayer. It's, it's fanatical. Have you ever met someone fanatical? Pastor, I don't like that. The Bible says in Genesis 12, 6, And Abram, Abram passed through the land into the place of Shechem. Oh my goodness. Please wake up. I've talked to you a long time. Wake up. Hear this. Mark this in your Bible. Genesis chapter 12, 6 and 7. And Abram, notice his name has not changed yet. Because God has not revealed that to him. Watch. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem. Unto the plain of Moriah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. That comes later. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto the seed, to, unto thy seed will I give this land. And there... Builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. 
Shechem. Shechem was a place of refuge way back in the Old Testament where someone could run to get their life avenged when they did something that was without malice or intent. But let me tell you about Shechem. The word means shoulder. It's a low ridge between two mountains. And in this particular place, Shechem was between Mount Ebal and Mount Gersom. It is here that Abraham built his altar. Abraham was in a place where, he, where God said, go and I will show you. When he gets to the place that God shows him, the Bible says that God told him to build an altar at Shechem, a low ridge between two mountains. There was an oak tree in Shechem, which is later to be called the tree of Morai, which in the Hebrew means teacher. All of the prophets you will find later in the Bible gathered there to speak to each other and To proclaim the word of God. This is a place where God brought them. So God brings him to a place. And listen, I forgot to tell you this. The place, the shoulder between the two mountains, Ebal means blessing and Gershom means curse. God brings you to the middle, the shoulder of curse and blessing. Boy, that's good. Then God says to Abraham, Abram, I want you to know my name. Hmm. You ever had a moment in your life where God said, have you heard me? Have you heard that I'm Jehovah Rapha? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you you just want to hear the word of God or hear who God is or hear what God is? Abraham didn't have the opportunity because God says, I don't want you just to hear me. I don't want you just to know my name. I want you to know the God of the name. Because we can walk around saying Jesus all day long, but if we don't know what Jesus can do, we are wasting our time. He says to Abram in this original Christianity, I don't want you to know Jehovah Rapha. I don't want you to know about the name. He said, I want you to know the God that will make the transition in your life. When you need a healing, I will heal. Jehovah Rapha. When you need a healing in your life. If you will walk with God, he will begin to disclose himself to you. He will begin to become your Jehovah Nisi. In the moment when you need him the most, he will be your banner when you need a victory. Are you hearing what I'm saying? He will become your Jehovah Rapha when you need a healing in your life. He will become your Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord is my righteousness when you need the gift of his righteousness in your life. God will not reveal himself to you. He will impart himself unto you. And this happens through prayer. This is that Abrahamic faith that Paul's talking about. Well, pastor, you still haven't got to the point. You're right. I want to lay hold, Paul said, for that which has laid hold on me. I want to lay hold on this blessing that God has given me. I want an impartation from God that changes my very life, that transforms my life, my life. 
my wife, my children. I need an impartation. I need a transformation. That's what I want. That's what I need. That's what I have to have. Do you have an altar in your life where God has met you? Do you have a place that you can look back where God has met with you? Where you build an altar, where you built a Shechem, where you build a place that he teaches you. If you don't have Shechems in your life, you can't call yourself a Christian. Because every time I'm down, I go back to that moment that God revealed himself to me. And I stand at the altar of my salvation. I stand at the Shechem, the altar, where God revealed himself to me in prayer. Early this morning, I was in Philippians 3. And God has met me there so many times. I remember in 1996, I had to actually calculate the year. I was 12 years old. God marked my life with this passage of Scripture. This is the first time that someone spoke to me and said, you'll be called to preach. And I thought they were totally nuts. Again, when I was 22 years old, God marked my life with this passage of Scripture that I'm reading to you. And God has marked my life over and over again. There's Shechem's. There's places that God has met with you to teach you. And listen, we, if we don't have them, you better start getting them. Because the vultures are circling. The vultures are after you. The vultures want your blessing. And listen, they are waiting to see that you are weak and anemic. They are waiting to see that you're apostate. People don't want preachers that jump and scream and yell. But when the power of God is all over you and you are looking back at the Shechem's, the altars where God has blessed your life transformed your life, given you prophecy and understanding and wisdom and truth for your family, you will go back to the altar when you're broken. Let me ask you a question. Real calmly and stuff. When, what if God told you, I want you to take a week and pray. I don't want you to go to work. I don't want you to to spend time with the family. I want you to take a week and pray. Because I'm going to bless you there. Nobody's had time lately, have you? You've all been working and nobody's been off work. Quarantined or anything. Everybody's been at work, right? But what if, just what if you had a week? Well, not, not two weeks, one. Would you take that time to pray for your family? Have, have you taken that time? Boy, I'm getting real bold now, ain't I? Has you been home to pray for your family? To pray for your church? Well, Pastor, that's your job. Is it? A church that is gathered together in family and unity, is it my job? <laughs> what you don't understand is I'm just the one that gets to preach to you. Make you mad. Because it is our job. It is, listen, let me tell you something else. It is our job to gather Shechem's as a congregation. It is our job to lift the banner of victory for the house of God. It is your job to lift the banner for your children uh, of victory. Come on. It is your job to lift the banner uh, of God. I need you to heal whatever you need healed in your life. It is your job to raise the banner. How are you going to raise the banner if you can't even when you're off and, and you're sick or you're at home for a couple weeks when you can't even spend time with God? When's the last time we prayed? When's the last time we spent time with God? As a matter of fact, we don't even know what it is. You know when we have fasting here? 
that people are like, what is fasting? Can I just, I won't text on my phone for a week. I'm fasting texting. Come again? I, 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 Pastor, I got a good one. Somebody actually said this to me. I said, we're going to fast. All I want you to do is drink water. I said, if you're a diabetic or something, you work that out with God. If you've got some kind of medical issue, you work that out with God. Because I'm, I'm not a freak, even though I am. I said, you just work it out with God. Whatever you do. But we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to fast. Only water. Somebody come up to me and said, I got it. I was totally caught off guard. I was talking to somebody else. And what, what do you got? I'll take whatever you got. I got it. I mean, I'm talking like elated excited. Not just regular excited. I said, I finished what I was doing. I turned to him. I said, well, what do you got? I'm going to fast Facebook. A whole week. You know what I said? No way. That's the greatest thing I ever heard. You're right. I'm elated too. What's Facebook going to get you except you're not going to be depressed? Because you ain't listening to all that trash for a week. Hallelujah to them. Maybe I should rethink my theology. Because we've got all these problems and trauma and dramatic issues. And do you know why? It's because we have not prayed. It's because we have not fasted. You'll never build a Shechem. You'll never build an altar. Ever. If you're too worried about all those other things. And the vultures circling if jared will come to the piano i'm gonna let you come home or let you go home i want to tell you one more thing as he comes abraham's grandson now follow me abraham builds an altar he builds a shechem in shechem to god Abraham moves on. He dies. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, will come to Shechem. He'll come in the Bible right to this very spot, this oak tree. This is where Jacob will bury his idols. Oh, God. This is where Jacob's wife, Rachel, who was an idolater and had been an idolater their whole marriage, will lay down her idolatry. For her marriage. This is when God will change their marriage. There's marriages in this church that are struggling to exist. And you can't even come and sit in the church pew. Oh, I hope you're hearing it. If you're not here, I hope you're hearing it. I'm looking and directing myself just to you. This is a solemn assembly. Where this, these two, this couple, come together. Follow me here because neither of them are in the presence of God. They don't want nothing to do with the presence of God. But Jacob has the calling of God on his life. He goes to Shechem. He goes to the place, the altar, the place that Abraham, his grandfather, has built for him. To get rid of his past. I want to lay hold. Jacob said, I want my granddad had. 
I want to lay hold is what Paul said on the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. I want to be in him. I want him to be part of me. That's not all. This is the place that Joshua would gather the people right here at this oak tree in Shechem. He would call the nation back to a solemn assembly with God. They would choose the blessing over the curse. The whole nation will experience revival at an altar experience that Abraham had many years ago. Oh, Lord. I'm telling you, your prayer life is bigger than you ever thought it was. Your, your prayer life will influence generations. I'm telling you, listen to me, church. Your prayer life will influence destinies. It may even influence nations. I'm telling you, get back to the altar. Get back to the place of prayer. Get back to the place that your grandchildren... Listen, you may not even be here, but you're praying for your grandchildren. Can we pray right now? God, I pray over this congregation, Lord. I pray with the sweeping power of the Holy Spirit that you begin to touch my children, that you begin to touch this church's children. Lord, that you, be you touch my grandchildren. Lord, that you touch my wife and their wives. Lord, I pray over this whole church, God, that you begin to sweep over this place. Touch our children's children. If you tarry, Lord, I pray, Heavenly Father, move. Move, move, move on us. Lord, we're building an altar right here. We're declaring your word right here over our children, over their children. I may never see them, Lord. I may never see my grandchildren, but Lord, I pray that you touch them, that you move on them. Lord, when they get into school, I pray that you make them ahead above the rest just because that they are yours. Lord, we pray success. We pray blessing. We pray, more importantly, your will over all of them right now in the name of Jesus. We pray for our children that are here with us, God. Lord, that they begin to build altars. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. If you're praying, you're seeing God. If you're praying, you're building Shechem's. You're building spiritual markers in your life. If you're a Christian, how do you know? How do you know? You may feel bleak today may feel like you're barely making it your marriage is barely making it you're barely making it to church but if you'll take the time when's the last time you gathered your families husbands and prayed when's the last time when's the last time you prayed with your wife I'm guilty as a matter of fact the thing that hurt me the most is I gathered my family several months ago. I said, when all of this started, we believe it was the end of May. I had the church. I called them to a solemn assembly. I said, at 6 p.m., we're going to gather our families and we're going to pray for the house of God. And we're going to pray for our individual families that God will bless us and that God will touch us and that God will bring us together in this time of tragedy. Do you remember? I was so disheartened. 
I gathered my family I, at 6 o'clock at 5 to 6. I wanted them all there. I, Luke was there, and, and Kate was sitting to the left of me, and Luke was in a chair next to me, and Wyatt was standing there. And I said, we're going to pray. And it became very awkward because Wyatt said, my son, five years old, why would we do that? He was devastated. What, what, do you, what, what do you mean? Well, why would we do that? We're going to pray to God because there's some things going on, and we don't know what the outcome is. He said, well, I'd rather play. Because if you don't know why, he's real straightforward like I am. Well, I'd rather play. Can, I, can you pray? And he did exactly that. He said, can you pray? And I'll just go play. Makes sense to me. And I said, no. We're going to pray. The whole time we're praying, I'm looking him right dead in the eye, and he's looking me back in the eye. Like, Is this all you got? And I'm like, why don't you want to pray? You know, Luke, Luke's the kind of kid that whatever you tell him to do, he'll do. And if you raise your voice slightly to him, he falls to pieces. Because he wants to please you. Luke wants to please you. Luke wants to get it right. He wants to do exactly as you tell him. And if, you do, if he does exactly as you tell him and you mess up, it's your fault. Because he did it right. Wyatt could care less. He don't care what you say. He don't care what's right. What he cares about is I'm doing what I want to do. Does that speak to anybody in the room? Because there's two types of people. Luke got his personality from Kate. I want to do it right. I want to get it right every time. I, I, I want you to tell me that I got it right because I want to please you. I want to follow the rules. I want to go to college. I want 19 degrees. I want everybody to know that I did it right. Then you got her husband. And we ain't got time to talk about him because church is over. Where do you think Wyatt gets his personality? I pray that God forgives me every day for what I did to my mom. Because I'm reaping what I sowed. The other day, he comes to the basement. This is supposed to be altar call. He comes to the basement. Ha! You'll never guess what I did. I'm thinking the house is burning down. He's drove the car over to the neighbor's house. I did that twice. At 14 years old, my mom was standing in the middle of the road at 3 o'clock in the morning when I came home, and she about tore the car up and me up. I thought, oh, Lord, he's five. It's happening now, and he's five. I said, what'd you do? He said, I'm not telling. I said, okay. I said, where's it at? He said, in the kitchen. I stroll up to the kitchen. I'm looking for traps because he sets traps on me. He's about broke my neck two or three times. Four in the morning, I got up with a jump rope tied to my bathroom door and nearly hung me. I come up the steps, I'm looking around, I'm looking for traps, I'm looking for Mission Impossible stuff. Nothing's going on. I'm totally oblivious to the fact that my microwave is going Because there's major things happening right now. And all of a sudden he goes beep, beep, beep. He said, ha! I did it and you didn't even know. 
I said, well, what'd you do? He said, I made us popcorn. Myself. He said, I climbed up. Sure enough, I opened the pantry door. Every shelf is on the floor. But he got the popcorn. I put, it, I put the bag in there. He said, I even broke it up like you do to make sure the butter goes through the whole popcorn. I know, Dad. I know. He said, are we going to watch a movie? I said, yeah, we watched about half a movie. We had to go to Luke's basketball game. He just totally left me for Brenda. So I never seen the end of the movie. You know, I like cartoons too. Pastor, why are you saying all these things? Because there are two groups of people in this room. There are the people that want to get it right with God. They will do whatever it takes for Him and to please Him. And they want to know, God, am I pleasing you? But then there's the people that are like Mission Impossible. God has to instruct them through an adventurous journey. He had to take Abraham on a journey. He had to take him to places and give him understanding, give him placement, give him blessing, show him the exact plan before Abraham would say, okay, God, I'll do what you want me to do. But then in the process, God laid markers and, and he laid plans out. And then he laid instruction and he began to guide and he began to bless him. And he said, Abraham, you're going to pray. Right here at this altar that I've given you. And you're not going to know it. But generations, nations are going to stand right here at this altar. And they are all blessed because of what you built. Because you followed me. Because you gave me plans. Because you guided, you were guided by my purpose for you, Abraham. That doesn't mean he always got it right. Tonight I'm going to show you that Abraham messed up just as much as everybody else. But the Bible says he was the father of many nations. Your, son, your children will be like the sands of the seashore. Do you know that Abraham questioned that after all that God had been, he had been through with God? He questioned that. Will I, will I be a man of many nations? He questioned it. 